industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. It's our end of the year special here on the Energy and Industrial Show. And I'm joined by Motley Fool contributors Matt Delalo, Jason Hall, and Lou Whiteman to help me break down the crazy year that was 2020. Maybe talk about some trends that'll stay in place going forward, some that'll go back to normal, some stocks that we're watching. Lots to talk about. I'm excited to have you all all on the podcast. Guys, what's going on? Uh, this is this is fun, you know. It's been it's been a couple years since we did like a big roundtable industry focus. So I'm pretty excited to uh, to be on with these two guys. Yeah, these are always fun. So I'm excited to see Jason again. We always have fun together. Yeah, always an honor. Always yeah. an honor. <laughs> yeah, so we're bringing it into the 21st century. As Jason said, the last one of these we've had, we've had the uh, the Motley Fool Writers Conference with everybody's in uh, you know down in uh, in Alexandria. We're all get together, but now. We're on Zoom with using the magic of Zencaster. We can all be uh, be together. So just a heads up for our listeners. This episode is going to air on New Year's Eve. We're recording it on December 18th, 2020, ahead of the holidays. If the Martians come down to Earth between now and then, that's why we're not talking about it. I don't know what the investing implications are, but I hope they you know, leave me alone. That's uh, That'll be my takeaway there. But uh, so for, first off, before we get into some of these topics, I just wanted to address the haters. I thought that would be a good place. To start, if you look back uh, this year in 2020, with the worst performing sector in the S&P 500, the energy sector down 29%. Uh, when I checked recently, if you look back over the past year, the past three years and the past five years, the energy and industrial sector are trailing the S&P 500 as a whole. So, you know, many are saying, why should you have energy and industrial stocks as, as part of your portfolio? How would you respond to these lewd accusations? Jason Hall. So first of all, I think there's a little bit of, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> particularly, particularly when it comes to the, so the energy sector. So there's context I think is important. So if you look at the way that the, the sectors are divided up, the energy sector is oil and gas. That's what it is. It's oil and gas. And that's, that's all that it is. And as of this writing, it's down almost 35% in 2020 since the beginning, since the beginning of the year. And it's hard to predict what 2021 is going to look like. We do know that the bigger trends are transitions away from oil and gas, right? So there's no getting around that. I don't think that that doesn't mean every every oil stock is 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 in a void, and every natural gas stock is in a void. I think there are some good companies in there. I think there's some good companies that could prove to be good investments, but I do think it's going to be one of the hardest industries as an entire sector. To outperform because energy is transitioning to other sectors. You look in the utilities, you look in some of the industrials and even tech companies like solar stocks are generally considered semiconductors manufacturers. So they're in the tech sector, right? So the face of energy is changing and that's going to make it hard for the oil and gas sector to, to remain relevant and a profitable uh, area to invest as an entire sector. Matt, uh, Lou, anything to add there? Well, I think, you know, oil prices is what drives returns here because, you know, if oil prices aren't going to go up again, then you're just not going to, you know, have a good year. But if for some, you know, like if demand comes back, like growing back, we had all this, you know, underinvestment the past couple of years, you could see like 
energy just shine one of these years? Maybe it's 2022 when, you know, we're back to normal and the industry hasn't come up and oil prices, you know, break 70 or something like that. But that's, you know, it, it's just so price driven and that makes it so difficult as an investor because who knew that we were going to, you know, blow up this year? It just wasn't on anybody's radar. And that's just been the problem that industry just had blow up after blow up. Yeah, and, and I'll say, you know, as a more industrial generalist, I, as the aerospace guy and airlines guy this year, I am certainly glad that industrials aren't my entire portfolio, trust me. But I am glad they're a part of my portfolio, and I believe to justice diversification work this year, if you're thinking like we talk about here at The Fool, you're thinking in terms of decades, I believe diversification works a lot of different ways. Like I say, glad I'm not only aerospace this year. I have a feeling there'll be years in the future that I'm glad I'm not all cloud. And um, that's my best argument for for these stocks as part of a diversified portfolio. Yeah, I, yeah, and I would say just regardless of, of sector, you've got to you've got to pick your spots. I, th- I think right now, if you're looking on a relative valuation basis, you're probably going to find uh, uh, you know better odds fishing in the uh, in the industrials, energy space than maybe you can find in in, in some of these other areas that have gotten. More attention, but we might talk about some of that uh, uh, later this year. We, we mentioned off the top just how crazy 2020 has been. I don't think anybody needs a reminder of that. Uh, but if you had to boil down this sector or, or the areas that you cover down to one headline for this year, what would be your one headline for 2020? We'll start with you first on this one, Lou. I think I think um, my headline would be it could have been worse. And uh, the thing is, and especially even with the airlines, if you look at where we are, and and the airlines got hit probably as bad as anyone, but here we are, December, uh, you know, less than a year later, the stocks have almost come back in some of the worst sectors. Uh, They are alive. They are, you know, we are still in business. And uh, I mean, I think that was a real point for this year, the resiliency of the economy, but also the resiliency of the industries that got hit hardest. So, uh, yeah, it could have been worse. Yeah, I think that's one thing I think about. Maybe, maybe you know, ask you this, Lou, as far as the vaccine and, and the pace of the way things have been, I mean, you, you couldn't have imagined a better outcome when it comes to recovery for, for any of these businesses, right? I mean, when you're in the middle of the pandemic, if you said six months from now, we're going to be rocking and rolling with vaccine distribution. I think, I think you know, Biden is supposed to get it on Monday here after we're recording. Uh, you know, could it have been much better for these companies when it comes to the recovery? Well, so far, I mean, I think it's speaking to airlines specifically, the one thing that was really lost was how healthy these companies were coming into this. I mean, there were in cycles past, we, I mean, every down cycle has seen airline bankruptcies. Uh, This was a much worse hit and yet we didn't see bankruptcies. That's partially to the government. Certainly the CARES Act wasn't, you know, that was a big part of it, but it was partially, this was an industry that was, more ready for this than it had ever been. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, look, we are at the beginning of of a very long end. This isn't going to be over anytime soon, but at least now with the vaccine, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. You can start putting a date or an idea of how long it'll last. And uh, yeah, I think you can say the worst is over. Yeah, so I, I'm uh, my official wedding date is July seventeenth, twenty twenty. I thought we weren't going to get the bachelor party in. I think we're going to make it to Vegas this year. So, uh, so you know, things are looking bright. Uh, Matt, what's your one headline for twenty twenty? 
Um, negative oil prices, I think, was the thing that uh, whoever saw that coming, you know, just the complete implosion of the oil market where you had the pandemic hitting at the same time Saudi Arabia and Russia decided that they were going to duke it out on prices and just totally cratered the oil market. And yet, same with industrials, it's still standing. And part of that's because they spent uh, the past what, four or five years recovering from the last one. And so we had a lot of better capitalized oil companies and still a ton of bankruptcies. You know, Chesapeake Energy finally went under and several others. But, you know, the industry survived and, um, you know, it, it should survive. The question is, you know, when's the man going to come back and, you know, how are they going to make money for shareholders in the future? Because they haven't done that in so long, but they're still kicking. And that's, a, you know, I think a, a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 been wild to see uh, just this this whole development for these uh, th- these companies this year. They've already had kind of a tough hand, and then you get the pandemic whacking them over the head uh, again. It's been it's been interesting to see them navigate that. Jason, yeah, so I think there's context that's it's easy to easy to lose, especially for people that don't follow oil and gas very closely. Is that the entire story of the oil crash this year is not is not the pandemic? Yes, that's been huge. I mean, that lopped you know thirty million barrels a day of oil consumption off in the second quarter for for six or eight weeks. But the bigger story that drove it started in early February when Saudi Arabia and OPEC tried to work with Russia to keep the market stabilized and Russia balked and Saudi Arabia went full on war. I mean, full on war at one point, And this was in March when this when when the battle really happened and Matt alluded to it. But I think it's really important to understand it. Saudi Arabia was ready to increase their oil output like 15% and and increase the amount of oil product that they were exporting. I think at one point they said like a 20% increase, right? And this is the country with the largest, cheapest oil reserves on earth that was going to absolutely drown the global market with excess oil. And then, of course, within a few weeks after that, the U.S. goes into lockdown, the pandemic, it becomes clear that the implications for oil consumption were were dire and OPEC circles its wagons and works with Russia to take a big 10 million barrel a day cut, U.S. producers realize that they have to start backing off on their on their development and completing wells uh, simply just to survive. But the bottom line is, even if the coronavirus pandemic didn't happen, I'm convinced that this would have been a brutal, brutal year for American independent oil producers because Russia and Saudi Arabia have spent the past four years stabilizing the markets. And U.S. producers have soaked up essentially every barrel of global oil growth. They've grown the U.S. grew production a massive amount. I think from like eight, from about eight or nine million barrels a day in 2016 to like almost 13 million barrels. Matt, I don't know if that's exactly right, but it was yeah, more somewhere around there. So it was this math. And at the same time, if you look at OPEC and if you so you look at Saudi Arabia and Russia, who are the second, third largest oil producers, they were essentially flat, right? And these are countries that rely on oil revenues to fund their governments and their social programs, right? These aren't private companies. These are entire countries that have millions of citizens that depend on those revenues. This was going to be a battle of a year, right? So that's, I think that's the bigger context that's easy to miss. And what that tells me is that informs me that going forward, it's you can't just look at Exxon stock price or Phillips 66 or, or, or you know, ConocoPhillips or any of these guys and just assume um, that the price is going to be what it was, you know, back in you know twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. It's not that clear. Yeah, I think I think it's important to note when you look at you know global oil and gas 
a massive proportion of, of those reserves, those, those uh, you know, um, commodities are controlled by national governments. And, and national governments sometimes have a different set of incentives than a for-profit business uh, might have. And that, that's, that's one example you're talking about there, Jason. Yeah, I think it's really, I think it's just really important context. Um, An interesting, go ahead, go ahead, Dick. No, that's all I got. I was going to say the interesting next step from there is that even, even with commodity prices being crushed and it being such a tough year, we've still seen wind and solar gain cost advantages, right? And that, that to me is just that that's the real power of, of the energy transition right there. Yeah, so, so you talk about the, this growth in wind and solar, that kind of maybe is a decent transition uh, to, to the next topic I have for us with with 2020, it's been this year of huge change, you know, with this rise of remote work, people working out at home, all these sorts of things. So that begs the question, what, what's a trend or change that, that took place in 2020, do you think stays the same going forward? Uh, and we'll start with Matt on this one. Jason alluded to it, but wind and solar, but especially solar, uh, it's, you know, right now wind is actually as cheap as some of the, the natural gas power plants out there, the you know, to, to do wind, but and solar is rapidly getting there. And within two or three years, I think solar is going to be the cheapest by far. And that's with adding energy storage batteries. And that's just incredible because, it, you know, you look back a couple of years ago and there were, there were just so many con- concerns like, how are they, how are we going to get to this future? And we're there, we're, we're right at the cusp of the solar, you know, explosion and the numbers, it, it, it could double the amount of capacity. I think they're, they're projecting like 10 gigawatts of new solar capacity added, you know, between now and 2022 per year. And that could double in the 2023 to 2020 or 2030 timeframe. That's just incredible amount of growth. And, you know, so I'm just spending a lot of my time looking at solar stocks and, you know, who's going to benefit from this because it should, the trend is there cost wise. And that, that you know, for all these years, it has been the government's help and, we, you know, the government can accelerate this and there needs to be more government policies to accelerate this. And that's where the Biden administration is going to come in. But it didn't work to the point where that's just, you know, kind of gravy for what this industry can do. So I'm really excited about solar. Yeah, the, yeah. the stat that comes to mind for me, uh, Matt, there is I saw an IEA report recently said if you look in 2020, they expect for the new additions for energy, 90 percent of those to be to be oil and uh, excuse me, 90 percent of those to be renewable uh, with only 10 percent coming from from hydrocarbons. So just just this massive shift over of where the new dollars are moving to. And we're even saying like one of the big players out there is Brookfield Renewable. You know, it's a stock that we talk about on a full lot. Right now, they're hydro. That's their big business. And solar is less than 10 percent. And they came out this year and said within the next decade, they, did, they expect solar to be the number one producer by capacity. And that's just because they just see so much growth. And they put, you know, they've done a bunch of deals this year. They just see that the returns are really fantastic in solar. And that's just been just such a bright trend this year. Matt, you mentioned you mentioned Brookfield. So there's a point that I, I wanted to make real quick here. So there was there are two probably the two buy signals for me on solar that have happened over the past few years. The first one was Brookfield Renewable uh, when when they made some pretty big investments to to expand their solar portfolio a few years ago, and that they've accelerated. That was the first big green light when Brookfield Renew, when Brookfield says, "Okay, we're going to go this way." That means that they can make money, right? And that's huge. As an investor, that's what you want to look at, especially in these commodity-driven sort of sort of industries, is when a big player with a successful track record of, of allocation to things that make money says, this is what we're doing. It means there's money to be made there. And then the other thing that was more recently was Next Era Energies. I think this was last year. 
Nextera Energy's, I'm pretty sure it was Nextera Energy's CFO on, a, on an earnings call, made a statement that they saw within five years, and this was something you said, but I heard this from an industry executive first, said, we see within five years, solar plus batteries will be cheaper than natural gas. That's huge, right? So again, Nextera Energy, this is a company that has a very clear track record of making money uh, in, in the utility space, and they're saying we're going to make, make a lot of money in renewables. So, Yeah, Jason, did you want to hop in with your uh, trend from 2020 that you think uh, is going to stay the same moving forward? Yeah, it's one that I think that we saw a big blip on the radar this year, but I think that the, that the trend is going to revert back to where it was, and that's, that's nat- natural gas exports. I think liquefied natural gas, North America has a tremendous amount of it. Australia has a tremendous amount of it. There are other places in the world that have a lot of it. And there's markets and there's places where populations are growing, where the middle class is growing, where the energy consumption is growing that don't have access to, to low, cl- low cost uh, energy. And, and natural gas is far preferable to coal, right? Because it doesn't produce all the particulates that are terrible for health. Um, the green ga- greenhouse gas emissions are lower. And I think, I think we're going to see probably late next year, maybe 2022, before we really see a full recovery and in investment in that, in that space. But I think it's going to recover because the demand for that energy is still going to be there, and natural gas is, is going to provide a big a big supply of that going forward. Absolutely, Lou. What is your uh, one uh, trend from twenty twenty uh, that you think is going to stay the same going forward? First thing that came to my mind here was logistics, and uh, this time last year there were a lot of discussions going on, a lot of companies thinking about outsourcing supply chains, outsourcing logistics, trying to simplify operations, and COVID really accelerated that trend. We've really seen a push in the second half of uh, this year towards some of these some of these companies, these logistics providers, taking over operations. And uh, I think that's I think that was the spark, and this is a trend that we're going to see over the long term. It's going to create opportunities for operators, for warehouse REITs, a lot of different people. Uh, couple that with the mega trend of e-commerce, the uh, fulfillment challenges it requires. Uh, logistics had a great second half of the year. I think FedEx is up 80% for the year. Uh, UPS, XPO, a lot of them are up 40, 45% or more. These are businesses that even without the vaccine shipments have a lot of tailwinds heading into 2021 and good long-term prospects. And I, I think we're just going to see more of the same for the next few years. Yeah, I think one of the things you, you hear about it in this industry, maybe I get your thoughts on it really quick, Lou, is, you know, Amazon's going after trucking and Amazon's going to get in there and gobble up the market. Is this one of those where you think that's a threat or the market's growing so quickly that, you know, there's going to be lots of winners here? Well, I'll, I'll quote one of my favorite things Jason always says is that, you know, when a big company comes in, that means they see opportunities. And I, I, I think that's the case for Amazon. I mean, for Amazon, it's interesting because in a way they're trying to turn a huge cost into a profit. So they have different incentives. It's, it's a little different. But yeah, there's so much going on here. And quite frankly, in the just the e-commerce, the business consumer, there are a lot of companies out there that have demand that don't want to do business with Amazon. And so, yeah, I think I think for some of the for these companies, I mean, FedEx just reported this week. They are, this is basically the year over year comparison to the beginning of their divorce with Amazon. And everything was up, margins are up, and uh, they see room for margin improvement in 2020 even after the the pandemic sort of uh, settles down. So no, I don't, I mean, Amazon's more proof of concept. It is a competitor, but um, no, they're going to be fine despite Amazon. Absolutely. All right. So, so that, those are the trends we think uh, that that 2020 put in place that we think are going to continue going forward on the other side. 
what's something that the 2020 brought forward that you think, you know what, we're going right back to normal uh, here once, uh, once, you know, people are allowed to do that in a safe way, Jason. So I, this is, you know, a little more on the industrial side in the real estate space. And, and I, as, as much as e-commerce, you know, 2020 has been an accelerant for e-commerce, right? There's millions of people that never would have anticipated, you know, e- you know, buying something online that this is, they do it now and it's comfortable. I mean, <laughs> if you had have asked me about Wayfair, right, this is a company that sells furniture on the internet a year ago. Hey, so let's just assume there's this massive pandemic and everybody's isolated um, and we have the worst recession in a century. How do you think Wayfair is going to do next year? I said, I would have probably said, yeah, they're going to go out of business, right? And they're crushing. Sales are up like 45%. So as much as we've seen e-commerce become established, I think next year, I think the second half of next year, physical retail is going to do very well. And I think that's going to be really good for some of the real estate uh, the, the, the retail REITs, um, that out there like Tanger factory outlets, ticker SKT, I think it's in a, the right space. Um, you look at realty income, I think they're going to do well. Um, so I, I think that, I think people are still sleeping a little bit, a little, a little bit on that. Um, and also I think it's going to be a great year, uh, for the convention industry. So a company like Ryman hospitality properties that owns these big event properties, because even if we'd have more remote work or some hybrid model, it's going to make things like big events more, more important. Right. And that's going to, so even if the industry, you know, even if work changes, those, it's good for industries like that. So I think those are some trends that I, that I see a lot of positive for. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes sense. You know, kind of travel related retail. When you look at where the Tanger outlet centers, they're often by places that are, that are high, high travel areas. I know, remember the one I always used to go to growing up was in Foley, Alabama on the way to the beach. And so if you're, you're thinking this idea that there's going to be more folks traveling, there's, there's some of the, these retail locations that are really targeted uh, to those types of, of customers. So I think that that's a really interesting one. Uh, Lou? So I want to be careful here and uh, kind of maybe split some hairs because I do believe in the long-term trend towards the electrification of the automobile. I really do believe that's a sustainable trend. What I don't believe in is the software-like valuations we've seen in 2020, not just for the manufacturers, but also the parts suppliers. Uh, Autos for 100 years, it's been a capital-intensive, labor-intensive business with low margins. And switching out the powertrain shouldn't change that. If anything, the tech that's coming into automobiles is increasing input costs. I love the trend of electrification. I think it's here for good. I believe there could even be some oversized winners and maybe a couple of these valuations will hold. But in general, it has been an amazing year for EV stocks, EV suppliers, part suppliers, LIDAR, all sorts of things attached to the second generation of the automobile. I can't imagine that trend continuing with the way it has this year. Time to find out how many of them actually grow into those valuations, right? Yeah, yeah. And and if you look at it, it's going to take years, even in the best case scenario. So it's yeah. uh, I, I, I love the trend of the vehicles. I don't like the trend on the stocks right now. Yeah, I agree with you, Lou. I think, I think you know, maybe... The short answer is too many companies. I think there's going to be some winners here. There ain't going to be dozens of them, and there's dozens of them out there uh, playing right now, trying to become those those happy few there at the end. Too many uh, people Matt. are too many people are assuming that the automakers that already have hundreds of factories are not going to be able to make the transition, and I think that's a mistake. Oh yeah. That's- 
That's a, that's a great point too. Uh, Matt, what's your uh, trend that you think reverses after 2020? Yeah, so kind of playing on both of those things, I, I'm like Jason, very bullish on just travel again next half. I, I don't see, for example, offices. That, that's been a sector that's been crushed. The office routes have been crushed because of work from home and people don't think people will go, be going back to the office. I think people will be going back to the office. And so people are going to be driving, commuting again. They're going to be flying on business trips again. They're going to be going to stores and, and travel. And and yes, with like what Lou said, the long-term electrification is big, but short-term, I think gasoline and refiners could we could just see a big spike next year. Uh, we had a lot of capacity cuts this year because of COVID, um, but there could be just a, a big tight market next year. Uh, you know, it's just people start driving again, flying again. So I think refiners could have a really, you know, tremendous year next year. And so that would be like a kind of a short term, you know, trade right there it would be, you know, your Phillips 66, your marathons, they could be, you know, great stocks next year. Absolutely. I, th- I think uh, on all these industries that you think about, maybe got starved for capital in 2020 for, for, for whatever reason. Uh, when that demand comes back, we're going to have to adjust. And, and these are real industries that require moving real goods in the real world and take some time uh, for those things to snap back. OK, so I want to move on uh, to our, our next segment You know, for, for our, our listeners who don't follow energy and industrials as closely as we do on a daily basis. There, there's lots of stories that may, may have missed their radar this year. What's one story from 2020 that folks overlooked that uh, folks should have paid attention to that we should have, we should bring attention back to? Jason. You know, I think it's I think it's one thing is what's happened with offshore oil. Um, I mean, we're, we're at a point where just about every major offshore oil driller, uh, drilling contractor uh, went through bankruptcy this year. So far at this at this writing, Transocean um, has, has managed to, to make it, but Matt, I, there's, I think they owed a, a, a big payment a couple of days ago. Again, today's the 18th as of this recording, but I think they owed money a couple of days ago. And I think that I may have heard that they were thinking about not making that payment, which would have potentially put them in default. So it's possible. It's possible. Every major offshore oil driller, uh, in the world, publicly traded in the world will f- have filed for bankruptcy during during this year and that has enormous enormous implications because at the end of the day to matt's point you know, at some point all of this underspending to develop those resources is going to catch up to to the world's ability to produce enough oil to meet the demand once it recovers lou mentioned the ev theme evs aren't going to replace all the automobiles in five years i mean the average car on the american roads over a dozen years old so even when the only thing that's being made is electric vehicles, there's still going to be a lot of gasoline vehicles driving, right? So that's a, I think that's a big one because these companies went bust because nobody was drilling offshore. That's the bigger underlying thing that I think we don't know. When that, when that comes home to roost, we don't know how that's going to affect oil prices, uh, gasoline prices, and what the implications are for there. And I think they're pretty big. So is this something where, you know, because historically there, there's lots of cycles in oil and gas, boom and bust is kind of is kind of a hallmark of the industry. Is this something where this bust in the case of the offshore folks is worse than we've seen historically? Yeah, I mean, we saw we saw more. So here's the thing. The, the industry was just starting to get, you know, just get it, getting bailing all the water that they took on back in early 2014. They were just getting getting that water out of the holes, right? They were just getting to the point where they were afloat to use as many ridiculous puns as I possibly can in one sentence. 
And then this happened, right? And this happened. And so you have these companies that are heavily leveraged. They carry massive amounts of debt. These, you know, a drill ship costs, what, $800,000. These things are incredibly, or $800 million. I mean, these things are hundreds of millions of dollars. And so they have huge, huge amounts of debt. And they pretty much depend on steady cash flows from long-term contracts to keep, you know, to keep things moving. And every, every oil producer in the world that, that had any flexibility to end a deal they did. They walked away. Even if they paid a, a, a penalty, they, they would do it to get away from these big deals. And so what we've seen this year, particularly in the Permian and a lot of U.S. shale uh, plays, is the, a lot of that oil production has helped bridge the gap because these guys were living on money they spent in 2019 to drill wells that just needed to be completed. Right. So the, the completion costs are lower. So there have been a lot of completing wells and, and kind of bridging that gap. So the output on the flip side, the, these offshore plays, they take years and years and years, like sometimes decades to really develop. So the full price that we pay, we're not going to know for a number of years before that lack of development catches up to, to demand. But I think it, it has big implications. We just don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, we're a little bit off the edge of the map uh, in, in oil and gas with this whole no shale thing and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Matt, what's your uh, one story from 2020 you think folks overlooked? Yeah, so green hydrogen is something that's kind of come to my attention this year. It's kind of been floated around as an idea for years is this could be that uh, eventual emissions-free fuel that, you know, could get us to those net zero targets that everybody's talking about. And during the second quarter, I was, you know, reading through Nexera Energy's conference call, and they mentioned that they were getting into this. And that kind of piqued my attention because they're so good at investing in renewables. And, it, you know, then I saw Brookfield, they're getting into this. Uh, we have a deal with Plug Power to supply them with renewable energy. And there's just been so much kind of under the surface talk about green hydrogen and its future. And it's, it's years, years away, but it, it could be this mega, mega market for uh, renewables, um, you know. And so it's just it's the, the thing that kind of stood out for me that investors should really put on the radar. It's on my radar now. And um, I'm, I'm really excited to see because of the potential. I mean, this is this could be the fuel that we need to get us to that emissions free future. So, so Matt, for folks, you know, listeners who don't know what green hydrogen is, can you kind of explain that, you know, that the 10,000 foot view of what green hydrogen is? Yeah. So, uh, um, you know, hydrocarbons, we're very familiar with hydrocarbons, oil and gas. And the problem with them is that, that carbon, we want the hydrogen because that's what burns, that's what gives us energy. And so what green hydrogen is, it uses renewable energy to produce hydrogen from water. So what's your, you know, output from that is... Um, oxygen which is not a bad thing so that's that's why it's just such a uh could be such a great fuel we could use uh renewable energy that and we can basically store it in hydrogen and then burn the hydrogen in for example natural gas power plants it could be used to power trucks and cars and planes you know there's a lot of pilot um uh projects out there to use it you know jet fuel and so it's just this potential great bridge fuel I think the dirty little secret that I just want to make sure it's abundantly clear for folks that don't know, essentially every bit of hydrogen that's produced in the world and used for industrial applications is a byproduct of, of steam forming from natural gas, right? That's, that's how most of it's made. It's not a clean fuel. It comes from natural gas, right? So not very clean. <laughs> so this right. is huge. This is huge. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So this prospect, and again, it comes back to those themes that y'all talked about earlier about uh, the cost of energy production from from wind and solar is becoming lower and lower to where it makes economic sense to to, to now do this. Uh, so so we're kind of entering a point where. Uh, you know, we talk about this energy transition has been a buzzword you heard a lot this year, and that, that that's a big driver. Um, and part of that's going to be some of these hydrogen fuels. Lou, what, what's a story from 2020 that, that folks overlooked for you? So, you know, it speaks to how far this company has fallen that could ever be overlooked. But uh, General Electric, maybe the stock of the 90s, and uh, it's been on really hard times, uh, down, I think, what, 80, 85 percent from its all time high in the summer of 2000. They finally, maybe, hopefully, appear to be on the mend. Uh, this is a company that basically just in in all sorts of industries did market topping acquisitions, took on huge amount of debts. Uh, businesses like their big energy business didn't live up to expectations. They've had three CEOs in the last couple of years. Uh, this one, the current one, Larry Culp, seems to be doing a good job trying to get the balance sheet together. They've, uh, I think, $40 billion or so worth of divestitures to try and stabilize things. They have a plan in place. It's very early. I'm not personally an investor, but it's it's for the first time in maybe nearly a decade for this company, it feels like they're moving in the right direction. And um, considering how far they fell, I think that's a pretty amazing story that kind of with everything else going on, it's kind of uh, I not appreciated yet by the markets, maybe. So, so what would you do with it? So if you're a shareholder in GE today, you know, you'd say, you know, stay the course. If you've held on this long, uh, things are, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel now. Absolutely. I mean, if, if you've held on this long, you have to stay the course. The, the more intriguing question is, is there are really amazing assets in that business. It's just been muddied by all the things that aren't so great. Is it time to get in yet? For me, it still feels too early just because, I mean, I I do believe in the potential of some of these businesses, but it it is a multi-year transformation and maybe we're through year one. So I'm still kind of watching it play out. But, you know, I, I, this is the first time and as long as I can remember that I'd even consider and ask myself the question, do I want to look at GE? And uh, that either speaks to my insanity or uh, Larry Culp's good work. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. All right, so so let's uh, let's move ahead. I think you know, folks like it when uh, we'll give them some stock picks, some some companies that are that are on our radar. What is one energy or industrial stock that you're excited about for 2021? Let's go right back at you, Lou. Let's keep you on the hot seat. So I, I mean, I, I get some feedback when I call this an industrial, but I'm I'm going with it. And on mine, if anyone's listened to this podcast before, they probably know it. It's Aircap. And uh, Aircap is in the business of buying airplanes and leasing them back to airlines. And no surprise, uh, this was not a good stock to own as the pandemic heated up. Uh, Aircap actually underperformed most of the airlines, which is understandable given it's a highly levered business. But the market really failed to appreciate just how conservative this management team was and how well this company is able to weather the storm. They have had issues. They wrote down, I think, a billion dollars in aircraft valuations just in the last few months. They've deferred hundreds and millions in lease payments, but they still have billions in liquidity and they have more unencumbered assets. Uh, With the vaccine, we talked about this earlier, I'm not ready to say the airlines are going to get healthy next year, but the worst appears to be over. And as the airlines get a little bit healthier, the odds of them paying their bills 
go up and the revenue should normalize for AirCap. Uh, there's a lot of pent up demand for air travel. AirCap, I think, is the best way to play into that just because this is a business airlines arguably need more now with their balance sheets in ruins thanks to the COVID crisis than they even did a year ago. It's better than Boeing, better than buying an airline. If you believe travel will come back, take a hard look at AirCap. All right, yeah, for, for our listeners, that's ticker AER, just a reminder there. And if you want to hear us talk about that company a little bit more in depth, I believe it was in November uh, we discussed AirCap. I believe the name of the episode was like the best way to invest in airline recovery or something like that. I'll, I'll throw a link in the description of the podcast for folks to check it out. Matt, what is your favorite energy and industrials pick for 2021? Yeah, it's Clearway Energy, which is a uh, renewable yield co. They own um, solar plants, wind towers, wind wind turbines, and uh, they've got some natural gas power plants. So it's a clean energy play. They um, they got hit hard. I think it was last year when uh, the big California utility PG&E went bankrupt. They were a big, you know, supplier of power there, but they got through the bankruptcy this year, and that enabled this company to boost their dividend. Like I think it was fifty percent, and then they've grown it since then. And they have a lot of deals in the pipeline to acquire assets from. Um, they've got a parent called Clearway Energy Group, which is owned by a big private equity firm. And uh, that's given them growth visibility, and they think they can grow their dividend another eight percent next year, and five percent to eight percent over the next couple of years. So it's uh, you know it's up there with like your next era and your Brookfield. It's just another one of those really solid renewable energy plays. They pay you know the dividend. I, I really like dividends, and so that's a, a good stock for my portfolio. And I, I just I think they've they turned the corner. They know what they're doing, and uh, I like what, what's ahead for them. All right, what's that ticker map? Uh, C-W-E-N. So right. there's, there's, two, there's two, I think it's good. So see, there's C-W-E-N and there's also C-W-E-N.B. And the a. difference is, or dot A, sorry. The, yeah. a share, the A shares, I think, are the non-voting shares. And then C-W-E-N, you get, you get a vote. So that's mm-hmm. the difference between them. I love that business too, Matt. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's another great renewable energy company. And for folks who, who have been listening, uh, you know, all year long, that's one that, that Matt and I have talked about. And I think Jason and I have talked about uh, on the podcast, if you look back at uh, some of the episodes we've done on yeah. renewable energies, that's another one. Uh, if you want to get a little bit more information on, you can go back in the archives. We, we talk about this every week. Uh, it's, it's kind of uh, it's kind of nice. Jason, what, what, what do you like in energy and industrials for 2021? So I went back and this is normal for me, right? It's hard for me to just pick one of anything. Um, but I'm actually going to make, um, this will be surprising to a lot of people. I'm going to, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick an, uh, an oil, co- I'm going to pick a company that's in the oil and gas business. I'm going to go with Phillips 66, ticker PSX. Now here's a couple of, of reasons why. Number one, Matt, the point Matt was making earlier about, you know, as, as things do start to normalize, that's great for refiners. That's going to be really good for refiners. And Phyllis 66 is one of the best refiners in the world. They have some of the most advanced, most efficient refineries, and they can generate massive, massive cash flows from it. The other things that I like about Phillips 66 is this is a business that's embedded in the North American natural gas story, uh, whether it's their pipelines to, to get that gas from from production to markets or whether it's monetizing that natural gas in their in their giant and growing petrochemicals uh, business. So you think about fertilizer, you think about car tires, you think about plastics for the healthcare industry, the feedstocks that come out of their their petrochemical factories have massive value and there's growing demand around the world. So this is a company that benefits in a lot of ways. Uh, they participate in the energy transition. They've already got one refinery that's making biodiesel. 
They have a, a refinery in the Bay Area of, Southern, of Northern California that they're converting to produce renewable fuels. So this is a company I think is going to participate in the transition. The stock right now is down like 41% from the beginning of the year. They're a buyer of oil. They're not, a, they don't produce oil. So they're on the right end of that transaction and, and they benefit from, from the recovery of demand. So PSX against a great dividend. I think what's the dividend yield right now? If I were to, it was around 5%, I think last time I looked, let's see, it's um, yeah. 5.4% today. Right. And they've held firm on the dividend and their cash flows are getting better. So it should prove pretty stable. So that's, that's, that's where I stand on Phillips 66. I bought not too long ago. I've bought in the past couple of weeks too. Awesome. So that's Aircap, Philip 66, and Clearway Energy in the energy and industrial space. I'll, I'll give you one just, just for fun. I, th- I think Berkshire is a the great pick in energy industrials. You talk about an industrial company that grows cash flow during a global pandemic. You talk about something that touches pretty much everything that, that's going to that's gonna uh, co- come in global trade. Charlie Munger did his, did his interview at Caltech this week, and he said, he said you know, a lot of great quotes. Every time you hear him talk, I, I think it's great, but he talked about uh, their, their, ra- their railroad, Burlington Northern, Santa Fe said, basically, if you want to take something from the port of Los Angeles to Chicago and you're not, you don't use our railroad, I don't know how you're going to do it. And Berkshire has lots of those types of assets. One of the biggest producers of, of renewable energy in the world through Berkshire Hathaway Energy. They're gobbling up assets that, that some of these other companies don't want to own this year, bought Dominion's Energy's pipeline assets. That's another one of those assets that, you know, it's really difficult to build new pipelines in, in 2020, but these are the types of things that if they disappeared overnight, we would notice really, really incredibly quick generates predictable cash flow for this company. I don't know how you lose money in Berkshire Hathaway over the next several years unless the whole stock market really, really uh, uh, blows up on you. So if you just want steady, dependable exposure to this industry, uh, that's probably going to, you know, give you uh, gains, at least on an absolute basis. Uh, sleep at night pretty comfortably. Um, I, I think you can do a lot worse than just Berkshire, even though it's boring and nobody's going to give you any like awards for saying you have Berkshire in your portfolio. I, I think it's it's a very simple uh, way to get exposure to some of these trends in a way that you know you can sleep at night pretty comfortably. Pop quiz, pop quiz for everybody. Berkshire Hathaway price to book rate value. So you use that as a pretty good metric considering the asset heavy aspect of their business and then their portfolio of equities. Uh, it's one about what about 1.2 times book value right now. When's the last time before 2020? When's the last time you could consistently buy it for that that book value? Gosh. Uh, 2016. Consistently? How about uh, 2012? 2013? 2012. 2012. That's the last time on a book value basis it was this cheap. It's it's touched that a little bit for a couple weeks here and there. Early 2016, it it, it came down for about a month. Yeah, this is this is a hell of a great time to be buying Brookfield or Berkshire. Yeah, it's a Freudian slip there. And and and. and. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Uh, so so that's what we got in energy industrials. We opened the show talking about you know we needed to address the haters about why you should own energy uh, energy industrial stocks. We thought it'd be fun to pick some that aren't in the energy industrial space. Give give some picks so. So let's do that. Lou, do you have a favorite non-energy and industrial stock that you're excited about for 2021? It's like we planned this, Nick, because, uh, you know, speaking of Berkshire, perfect uh, feed in. I'm going to go with Boston Omaha. And the ticker there is B-O-M-N. And this is one of those so-called baby Berkshires. Right now, it's a it's it's just a couple of business. It's billboards. It's rural broadband. It's a lot of insurance assets. But the model is similar to what Berkshire Hathaway tried to build. These are 
businesses that are set up to generate strong operating income, strong cash flow, which is fuel to grow and find new businesses. Now, this is a much smaller version, much earlier version, and the stock has been a real loser for most of the year. It's at one point, I think it was trailing the S&P by 40%. It's come back some, but you know, there's a lot of execution risk here because not everyone can be Warren Buffett. So that is the danger. But I really like what they've done. I really like the team here. And it's just a it's an interesting setup that I I, I enjoy being a shareholder and kind of following, seeing what see what becomes of it. Yeah, I, I own Boston Omaha, Lou. You know, it's actually I think it's it's a Warren Buffett's like great grand nephew or something like that. Something it, like it, that. It's yeah. one of the leaders of the business. But but you look at, yeah, it's this it's billboards business, which it's, you look at the uh, the economics of that business. It's really tough to get new new billboards put up. But but those um th- those uh, those assets ha- have some value. They also have the surety insurance business, very reliable uh, income. The one thing I did want to ask you about, very thematic to 2020. What are your thoughts on their SPAC that they did this year? It's it's fascinating. I I, I didn't touch it. I, I but uh, it's it's fascinating. And you know who knows? Why not? Right? But uh, but no. Yeah. This this is a company that has cash. It makes cash. And the question for that for as an investor is, what are you going to do with the cash? And uh, it's 2020. They did a SPAC. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, the exciting thing is, so, so the kind of background on the SPAC is is they they had had some previous investments uh, in, in home building and some some structure structural things they couldn't own it in there. Um, and their existing uh, uh, structure without getting into some regulatory issues. I, I think it's an exciting company. I, I like a lot of the, the moves they're making. Um, Matt, what about you? What outside of energy and industrials, what's a stock you're excited about for 2021? Lemonade, which is a kind of a fintech company that does insurance. My real estate agent actually showed me um, when we were buying our house uh, about it, and I, you know, checked into it. And uh, compared to what traditional insurers were were doing in the process, I mean, it was so simple to get insurance through them, and um, you know, the quote was so much better than what I was getting from traditional insurance. So one of our houses is insured with um, Lemonade, and uh, you know, I've kind of been following it on um, Twitter, a bunch of you know, different financial gurus that I follow on Twitter like it. And um, so I'm really looking into it. It seems like as soon as I was about to buy it, it popped. And, uh, you know, I just can't pull the trigger just because I'm stubborn like that. But um, that's the one I'm really excited about. And I want to own it, you know, before 2021. Awesome. Yeah. I love it when you have this great experience for a user and then you're like, as a user and you're like, Hey man, this thing is public. Let me go see if I can, if I can go uh, invest in that. That's always super exciting. Jason, what about you? So I'm going to go with Magnite, ticker MGNI. Um, this is this is a company that's right at the the this this confluence of ad spending and the shift away from broadcast TV to connected TVs. And so a lot of people are familiar with the Trade Desk, ticker TTD, right? So these are companies that are kind of complementary. One is on the sell side, one is on the buy side, so they don't really compete, which is really really good. Uh, and they're also they're, they're, they're great for ad agencies to work with. Right. So it's, 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 it's kind of business that's really complimentary and it's also in an industry that is still at the very, very early stages. It's market caps, less than $2 billion. It's probably about 1.4, $1.5 billion today. Trailing revenues are, are less than $200 million. And there are hundreds of billions of dollars every year that get spent, um, on TV and video, ad revenue, right? You think about these giant deals that sports channels pay to get sports content. They're spending that money because they're going to get a lot more in ad revenue, right? So 
ad revenue is a big thing, and this is a company that's in the right place. I think it's a little overlooked right now, um, and I think it's this is this is a company that I could see it being worth twenty or thirty billion dollars in you know ten years. Awesome. Yeah, I'll give you. A, so I talked about Match Group on a recent episode of the podcast. I like that one a lot. I think they, they've essentially cornered the market on, on dating in, in 2020. I think it's even more so when you look at uh, this past year during a pandemic. If you were a quote unquote traditional dater, you had to figure out something uh, if you wanted to stay in the dating market. Uh, and so that's pulled even more people into that uh, into that industry. If you look at it even before even before the pandemic, trends were toward more than two out of every three couples meeting online and match group essentially controls all the platforms uh, uh, of significance uh, in that industry. Tinder, Hinge, um, Plenty of Fish, their their namesake platform, uh, lots of others. OkCupid. Okay, um, it really got a significant a share in, in that in that industry. As we move forward in, in 2021, people are going to go back out into the real world and do real dating. That's, that's a continued tailwind um, for this business. It really... The takeaway for me is this is a business valued at, at $40 billion. If you don't have a relationship with, with an online dating platform and you're someone in the dating market, you're at a structural disadvantage to everyone else, everyone else in the dating market. The predominant payers on this platform are going to be men. Uh, women are, I think the stat is 25 times more likely to get a match than men. So clearly the folks that are paying to get extra swipes and things like that on these platforms are men. And if you know anything about men, uh, if you want to get into the bar where all the chicks are or wherever you will pay whatever it costs. Thirsty dudes will pay more, whatever the number is, they will pay more. Uh, this, this company is $40 billion. It's worth more. Nick's bullish on thirst. Yeah, very, 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 very bullish on it. I, I you know, I, I don't think I would ever bet against, you know, if, if like, I, I can't tell you the number of times that, you know, there, you know, you're, you're in your, your young twenties and there's a place where like, there's, you know, that this is the bar where everybody has to be at. If they charge five more dollars for cover, you will pay. Mm-hmm. And, and Match Group is kind of their work in the door at, at the great big bar of, of, of the 2020s. So um, I, I would like to uh, tone a little piece of that. that. That's kind of my takeaway there. Other one I really like is Redfin. You see this other uh, kind of inflection in, in how people are shopping for homes. 2020, you've seen all these all these people, this flood of, of people uh, into the housing market. Part of that's because interest rates have been part, so low. Part of that is this opening up of of remote work and Redfin really sets up perfectly for millennials entering the home buying market. So so once you get a, a realtor, you stick with them. So not, if you ask uh, uh, the typical home buyer, nine out of every 10 say they're going to use the same realtor they use the first time through. So when you're acquiring customers in this market, it's really you want to get the first time home buyers. Redfin set up for that market. Millennials are super cost conscious because we can't afford to buy homes. That's why you see the average age of ho- first time home buyer ticking up. That puts Redfin in a good position as someone who, who's their their innovation is lowering the cost. Second, second off is Across all age demographics, it doesn't matter. The first place people are going to find homes is online, and Redfin has been an online first platform from day one. They're going to continue to take share. Um, and, and over time, what essentially they're doing is they're aggregating demand for folks to come buy homes. They're going to go go to Redfin to go, go look for homes to buy, and that'll give them opportunities to attach lots of other services on, whether it's brokerage or title or all those sorts of things. So, so the, the kind of last thing that, that I think is interesting with Redfin is if you look at the way people find mortgage brokers, that the, the predominant way is through referral. So the bigger this business gets, the more folks they acquire, it gets easier and easier for this business. So if you, if you, you know, project out 
you know, five years, they continue on this growth trajectory, it becomes harder and harder and harder for the incumbents to compete with Redfin. And I think they're kind of a snowball rolling downhill. We're going to turn around 10 years from now and they're just going to be clobbering this industry. So those are two that I really like. One of the things they're really focusing a lot too right now on Nick is, is getting employees licensed, licensed brokers. So they're really, really, they're going after this market in a really big way. Yeah. If you look at management right now, uh, you know, in, in recent quarters, their, their big thing they're saying is we don't have enough agents to meet demand. Number one, right. we don't have enough agents to be able to service all the transactions we'd like. And then number two, on the buyer side, there's just not enough entry level homes, you know, to, to, to service all the buying demand. There's not enough homes for sale. And, uh, you know, it's a good problem to have if you're servicing an industry and there's more demand than you could possibly meet, even though you could try your hardest. So, um, I think th- those were a couple I'm excited about, Match Group um, and, and Redfin. All right, I think we have time for one last segment before we hit the road. This is going to be about an hour-long episode, but you know what? It's it's the new year, and I, and I think, folks, there's a lot happened in 2020, so we've got a lot to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. Last thing, hitting the road, do you have a New Year's resolution, a lesson you learned uh, in 2020 that, that you know, you're going to take forward with you and try to implement going forward? Jason, I'll let you go first uh, with this round. So I think the lesson I learned is that really the same – the same things work uh, that that worked in years before. As much as we look at this year, and you know, we had this that we had the fastest thirty percent drop in history, and then the fastest thirty percent or forty percent gain in history, the fastest full recovery from um, a market crash. Like all of those things happen in one year, and that doesn't normally happen. But what we've learned is that the things that still work are buying great companies. Uh, paying a, a good value and and then holding that company for as long as possible, that still works, right? We certainly learned that it doesn't work to try to time your way around it. Could you imagine being that, and it might be some of you, could you imagine deciding to sell, you know, in late March, looking at everything that's happening with the, with the anticipation that this is going to be a long, deep recession and a long, deep market crash. And here we are heading towards the end of the year and knocking on a 20% gainer for a full year and up like 110% from the bottom, the stuff that works still works. And I resolve to remember that and not make dumb mistakes like selling great companies that I love that are growing like crazy just on valuation, because that's the thing that doesn't work that I have done a few times a little bit that have hurt me in bigger ways. Um, so that's my, that's my thoughts and my resolution. That's great, Jason. Life moves pretty fast. I think that's my kind of my takeaway. The Ferris Bueller, Ferris Bueller line, you know, life moves pretty fast. And I think 2020, that's no better illustration than that. Matt, what about you? Yeah, I, I focus a little bit too much on value. And I'll look at a stock that you know, I mentioned lemonade went up, you know, as I'm watching it. And, I, and that just, I need to get away from not buying when I see a great company and just look more at the long, long, long-term picture instead of, Oh, it just went up 20% since I started looking at it and, you know, buy a little bit and hope that it goes, comes down. Cause if it doesn't, I can buy more. And if it doesn't, Hey, at least I've got some of it. Uh, so I, I definitely want to do more of that. I def, you know, I've been sitting on cash as the market's gone up and I went shopping heavily when it went down, but as it's gone up, I've just been sitting on, you know, kind of on my hands a little bit too much. And, you know, I missed some still great companies that I could have got a better valuations if I just would have bought, you know, even though they went up. Right. So get some skin in the game. That, that's, a, yeah. that's a good one. I think, I think you, know, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, we can be hesitant, but sometimes uh, you just need to fire away. Uh, Lou. 
So great. I can end this by being the wet blanket, but uh, let's go. Let's go. I love it. it. It feels like my New Year's resolution, and I think I would advise it for all investors, is it feels like a good time to have that blunt conversation with yourself about risk tolerance to kind of gameplay what you will do if it goes down, to kind of steal yourself, get ready. And uh, I want to be clear, this is not a market prediction. I don't know if stocks are going up or down in 2021. But if we're honest, we've had a really good run. I saw a stat the other day that Dallas gained 20,000 points in the last 20 years. 60% of that has come in the last nine months. All right. Hopefully, we're going to keep going up for years and years to come. But the worst mistakes happen at those moments like in March when it's, oh, God, what do I do now? It feels like the good time to just talk to yourself to prepare yourself for that just in case we don't go straight up, just to make sure there isn't a panic decision then or it catches you off guard. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Lou. Maybe I, I just maybe leave you off my lesson was, I guess my lesson, big one is I don't know. I think that's that's the big takeaway from this year is anytime you thought you were certain about what was going to happen next or, or you know, what's, what's going to happen with XYZ company, um, the answer was I don't know. And uh, I, I think you know, this year, as for my portfolio, you know, to, to Jason's point, as it turned out, if you'd have told me in March that, that this would turn out being, you know, one of the best years I've ever had as an investor, I never would have believed you. But, you know, and maybe to circle back to what Matt said, too, at, at the end of the day, the things that you're looking for in companies are the same. No matter, you know, what's going on in the stock market, you're looking for the same qualities when it comes to businesses that have long, sustainable advantages. Um, and if you know that, you don't have to know anything about a lot of the other stuff. And so I think, you know, knowing what, you, what, what you're good at, paying attention to what you know, and, and, you know, trying not to get too confused about all the stuff that you don't, um, that's a lesson I'm going to try to take going forward. But that's a lot easier said than done. I probably, I probably would have, uh, you know, uh, it, it's really hard to do when, when, when all those uh, kind of emotions are flying, when, uh, when the, you know, the stock market is down um, uh, lots of percent. So, so yeah, I think. Nick, you know. Nick, there's one other there's one other piece of information that is incredibly handy to managing your emotions, and that's knowing when your financial goals are. You know, when are you retiring? When is your kid going to start college? When do you want to buy that vacation property? When do you want to try to pay off your mortgage? Whatever. If you know when your goals are, it's a lot easier to look at that date and see how far away it is, and not do something dumb, like sell just because the S and P five hundred's gone up sixty seven percent over the past nine months, right? Because you know you're not retiring for 10 years or 20 years. You know you have plenty of time to ride out those ups and downs. And also, it can be a reality check. If that date does get to closer, then you might say, well, you know, it is time for me to shift these high volatility assets into bonds or into cash because I'm going to need it and I can't risk the downside now because I'm going to need it next year or whatever, right? Yeah, I, th I think knowing your goals, knowing knowing you know the problem or the game that you're playing, which in our case is long term, picking companies that have strong advantages that can continue to compound those advantages year over year. If you stick to that game, I think you're going to have success in the stock market, and that's the game that we try to talk about every week on this podcast, and we'll continue doing it in 2021. Hopefully, it won't be quite as exciting as 2020, but uh, but we'll see. It's really been great having you all on uh, for this roundtable to break you know, what was this wild year? Break it down a little bit. This was fun. This was fun. Matt, Lou, it's really good to see you guys. Yeah, good to see you guys. Definitely. <laughs>
<laughs> All right, y'all. Uh, Happy New Year. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Heather Horton for mixing the show. For Lou Whiteman, Jason Hall, and Matt DeLalo, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on.